Good morning, it's DJ and PK. It's 97.5 and 12.80 The Zone. All right, I have random thoughts. You know, something we brought up yesterday we probably should have spent a little more time on. South Carolina Athletic Director Ray Tanner said the regional differences and restrictions during the coronavirus outbreak could make it challenging for conferences to align on when to play the 2020 college football season. You know, this kind of makes sense to me, and it's one of the many problems, right? You want to be hopeful. You want to be optimistic. We're not going to get back to normal anytime soon. So I've, I'm, I've, I've adjusted mentally to that thought. So the closer we get back to normal, any small progress towards normal, I am willing to embrace and accept. So how does a college football season start? Does it need to start a month late in October? Do they need to start it in January or February and play it? And it hadn't really occurred to me, although that's just because I'm a moron. (laughs) If I'd have thought about it, as soon as uh, as soon as Ray Tanner, the South Carolina AD, said it, I thought, well, that makes sense. You know, we're seeing right now. You can look at these uh, COVID nineteen maps, right? And the outbreaks are worse in some places than others. Right. And right now, uh, Chicago's getting hit really bad. And so is Detroit. Well, Detroit got hit early. Chicago, it came a little later. Seattle, San Francisco, and LA looked like they were getting hit early, which makes sense because they have a lot of flights coming in from China and the, and the Pacific Rim and Asia and all that. And then they seem to get their numbers under control. So now they're doing better. New York got crushed early and has just been getting crushed. And the news there has been relatively speaking better lately, but it's still awful. And yet Washington, D.C. is, you know, D.C. to New York is roughly Salt Lake to Vegas, not exactly, but kind of. And D.C. is supposed to peak uh, at the end of May. They're a month away. And Robbie Russell, who played for RSL, he scored the penalty kick, the goal that gave them the 2009 MLS Cup. He made the last one when they were in this sudden death shootout. He's now an ER doctor in Virginia. And he said that they're going to peak in late May or maybe in June. So we're getting all these different, you know, even in the state of Florida, Miami's got it worse than the Orlando-Tampa area, right? So the first thing I thought when I heard this AD was, yeah, one conference will play their schedule at this point, and then another conference later, and then you know somebody may start September 1, somebody may start October 1. But then when I started thinking about it, when you start seeing, well, just the difference in Florida. I mean, that's Miami and Florida State, right? My, the, the, the hurricanes... It's just different for the Hurricanes than it is for the Seminoles. I don't even know that conferences can play at the same time. If we're going to have football this year, they may have to play games uh, and just flip-flop home games. You know, like this campus is cleared and this isn't. And possibly, for TV purposes, games will have to be played at neutral sites. You know, if, if Alabama can play a road game and somebody else in the SEC, the two schools can play for the SEC network, because we're just talking about TV money. I can't believe we're going to have 50, 60, 70,000 people at college and pro football games. Maybe if we're lucky, they'll let 10 or 20,000 people scatter across the stadium. Saying that out loud sounds crazy now. And you know, stuff may change. We've had the lieutenant governor on the air here, Spencer Cox, talking about, you know, that uh, there are some treatments that look promising, and maybe in a couple months we'll know more about them. You know, and, and we'll have more confidence in them. So a lot of things can change. But when I when I heard Ray Tanner talk, I thought, man, there's even more questions than I thought. It's why I think that if the NBA can come back, and I'm not sure it can, maybe they can go to Vegas. I'm at the point now, after listening to Joe Ingles on uh, Friday, 
Uh, he talked with us on Thursday, and he hit on it a little bit there, and then he talked more about it on Friday when he did a Zoom conference call with a lot of the media. You know, you could really hear, there's a part of him that wants to come back, because, well, you know, he's under contract, he'll get paid, he knows a lot of people's jobs depend on it, and you're a basketball player, you want to play, but there's also a part of him now, like, the whole momentum of the season has been broken. You know, being away for two or three thing, weeks is one thing, being away for two or three months is another. And now if you're going to come back without the fans, and you're going to come back without home court advantage... I mean, one thing you play for in playoff seating is home court advantage. There's no home court advantage if you're playing in front of an empty arena in Vegas. And I could see them taking only 20 teams to Vegas or maybe 16, not taking the whole 30, because the more people you take, the more chance you're taking someone who's positive who's going to infect other people. So do you just take the eight teams in playoff positions, or do you take 10 and let you know, 9 and 10 battle with 7 and 8 to see if they can get in. I think in the West, 7 are pretty much in. I think it'd be more 9 and 10 battling with 8. Um, do you limit travel parties? I mean, the Jazz famously had 58 people. I never knew how many people exactly they traveled with, but we know after Oklahoma City, they had 58 people in Oklahoma City. So how do you cut that number down? Do you limit the number of players or the number of support staff and the number of assistant coaches and the number of development people? You know, in, and if you do, what is the number? Is it 50? Is it 40? Is it 30? Is it 20? Hey, it's old school. Two assistant coaches, a head coach. 12 players, not 15. One trainer, one equipment person. You know? I mean, part of that media thing, for the, for the there were uh, two radio broadcasters, two TV broadcasters, TV producer. There are probably a couple other TV people who travel. A lot of them are hired in the local markets. But there were probably seven or eight media people on that, on that flight. Not happening in Vegas. So there's a lot of details to go through before you restart sports. But it's really occurring to these ADs, and I'm sure to you know NBA owners and Major League Baseball owners, that it's just not going to be the same in every city. Uh, some of the coverage I read of the NFL draft afterwards is the NFL, they're going to release a schedule here in a week and a half or two, but they're realizing this is going to be more complicated than we thought. But hopefully the lieutenant governor's right, and there's some kind of treatment, and that makes it a little easier to go. And, you know, I am reading about schools, colleges, universities that are going to have their campus open to students. If the campus is open to students, then there ought to be a way to play football and volleyball and cross-country and any other fall sport. You know, if, if you can have 10, 15, 20,000 students roaming around a campus, well, then you ought to be able to have, you know, 80, 85 scholarship football players get ready for a game. All right. All remains to be seen. Lots of unanswered questions out there. DJ and PK, we're taking a break. When we come back, we're talking NFL Draft with Andy Benoit. Covers the NFL Draft for Sports Illustrated and Bet Online. Zach Moss, 20-1 to 1 to be the Offensive Rookie of the Year in Buffalo. How about that? We'll talk with him about the teams that hit and how some of these guys fit with their teams uh, in Dallas, in Indianapolis, in Buffalo. We'll do that. And, of course, you got to find out what he thinks about Tom Brady and the Bucks, right? We'll do that next. Stay with us. Take the zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all-new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of the zone as well as podcast editions of every show. From Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo, wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280, The Zone, and The Zone Sports Network. DJ and PK, it is time to talk NFL Draft with Andy Benoit. He covers the NFL Draft for Sports Illustrated and Bet Online. 
And he is joining us on the Sprint Special Guest Line. Sprint makes it safe and easy to get what you need online. Please visit Sprint.com for online services and local store availability. Andy, good morning. Hey, guys. How are you? Good. So, I'm curious here. Uh, you know, covering it for Bet Online, they put a they put a number on everything. Everybody's got opinions, but they put a number on it. So, biggest surprise, biggest lock, who really won in the draft? Well, you know, one that stands out to me is is the Dallas Cowboys and the value that they got at each pick and and. C.D. Lamb, for example, you mentioned bet online. I think they, his number's 850 over under for receiving yards. I could see him, even if he's under that, which is possible given how many playmakers that they're going to have to be feeding the ball to, I could still see him being one of the most valuable rookies in this draft because his presence now allows Amari Cooper to go into the slot if they want because Lamb can play outside or inside. That's the way Cooper is, and I think Cooper's at his best when he's aligned inside. So anytime a team can get a dynamic player later in the draft than they thought, which is already what happened with Lamb, I think Dallas would have expected him to be off the board by the time they picked. Anytime you can get that and and not only have that player now available to you, but have him make your best player even more valuable, to me that's a home run type of draft pick. So you've got Zach Moss in as uh, 20 to 1 to be the Offensive Rookie of the Year in the NFL. Should uh, Moss and all the people uh, cheering for him be pumped that he went to Buffalo? Is it a perfect matchup of a bad weather uh, locale and a rugged running back who ought to be able to uh, be good in December? If it's snowing? Yeah that's, a, that's a, yeah, that's a good way to put it. I think a lot of the comparisons or some of them that you hear about Moss is he has some similarities to Frank Gore as a runner. And, and Frank Gore obviously was in Buffalo last year, and he, he won't be this year, which is why Moss is here. And what Gore's always done so well is the, the patience between the tackles and the ability to get through small cracks and without losing his balance. And I think that's something that Moss can bring to the table theoretically. You know, we don't know for sure on any of these guys. They're all just kind of concepts as players right now. But what you project him as, he will fit Buffalo's run game in that sense. And the Bills do a lot of man-to-man blocking outside. So if he has the ability to, to press his blocks and read defenders on the move on the perimeter. He's going to be very productive for him. Now, his numbers might not be huge, though, because he's going to have to share his touches with Singletary, their running back from a year ago. But the, together, those guys, that's a really good, stylistically, that's a really good one-two punch. You speak of the Cowboys getting value. You know, they took Bradley and I later in the draft, and he's the all-time sack leader for the University of Utah. And that's a position where if you're making that many sacks for, for Utah, you're probably a good player. How much value do you think the Cowboys got in an eye? Well, uh, yeah, for fifth round, as a fifth-round pick, it could be very good value because any sacks are difference-making type of plays, and you can accumulate them in a situational role. Theoretically, and we'll have to see what he is in the NFL, but theoretically, a nigh could play 15 snaps a game in only passing situations, but those are critical snaps. Those are third down and 10 type of snaps or third and medium. So there's a chance at value there. What will be interesting to see, 
Dallas has been running this 4-3 straightforward scheme for several years. They're going to go to something else under Mike Nolan. What Mike Nolan, last he's their new defensive coordinator, what he did last time we saw him coordinating a defense, which is several years ago now, he's more into blitzing. And when you blitz, it, it has a different demand on some of your athletes, and you're not necessarily looking for just pure edge benders, but overall athletes as well. So it'll be interesting to see how Anai is used in that scheme. So you talk about the Cowboys getting value. I've read some really complimentary reviews of the Colts draft. They used Julian Blackman part of that, but a lot of people think the Colts hit on multiple picks. And I, I would be one of those people. With offense, they got the big X receiver that they wanted, Michael Pittman. They have a, uh, the second pick in, in, the, in their second round, 41st overall. I think Jonathan Taylor's a guy a lot of people felt was the best pure runner in this draft. He's not the most dimensional receiving back, but the Colts don't need that. They have other backs that fill that role already. So a big X receiver, a sustaining dynamic first and second down runner. And then I like the Blackman pick for the reason that Indianapolis puts three safeties on the field quite often with regularity. And in the past years, they've done it more and more as the season has progressed. So Blackman has a chance to really develop over the course of his rookie year. And it'll be interesting to see where they see him and where they line him up because the Colts will play some two deep safety stuff at times. It's not just one deep safety all the time. So there's some options there of how you use guys. But safety is a position for them. You really can't go wrong because they use so many of them. I'm wondering what you think of the Dolphins. They draft three offensive linemen and obviously Tua, and I don't know if Tua's going to sit a year, but let these offensive linemen, including Austin Jackson, the kid from USC, maybe develop. And are you thinking they're building something that is going to go in the right direction? Yes, I do think they're going in the right direction. I was really impressed with them last year. I watched all their snaps on film, and I never once thought they were tanking like they were accused of. And in the second half of the season, it really reflected. They, they won a lot more games than a lot of teams would, given the level of talent that they had there. So that coaching staff did a great job of getting the most out of its guys. And now here they are bringing in the guys that they want, and they're overhauling a lot of the roster. And this is really phase one. Phase one's tearing it down, which is last year. Phase two would be building it from the ground up. And they got a couple phases to go. But they made a lot of progress. Offensive tackle, they needed two of them coming into this draft. You mentioned Jackson. He'll probably be their left tackle. Robert Hunt, who they got early in the second round, has a chance to be their right tackle. Uh, Tua will be the interesting one. I would imagine he gets on the field. Really, only two or three guys in the last 15 years have truly sat out and learned from the bench as rookies. And Pat Mahomes is one of them. Aaron Rodgers is one of them. Those guys were supremely talented, and they joined very stable organizations with teams that were coming off of a playoff win or or at least a playoff appearance. So the point is NFL QBs don't sit and develop from the bench anymore. And Ryan Fitzpatrick, who will probably be the week one starter, every year he's going to throw half a dozen interceptions that just boggle your mind. And I bet he'd even admit that and tell you that. Those kind of interceptions are exactly the kind of plays that get veteran QBs benched when there's a rookie behind them. 38 wins for the NFC West. I mean, the Cardinals have some work to do with a young quarterback. Everybody else had a winning record. Uh, Burgess goes to the Rams. 
with the quarterbacks in that division, how much pressure is there on all the defenses? And how much pressure is there on guys like Burgess to be good right away? Because everybody needs help. Everybody needs depth. You know you're facing six games against quality quarterbacks just inside your division. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a lot of pressure on Burgess because the Rams' new scheme, their new coordinator, Brandon Staley, his system it puts a really big emphasis and a really big burden on linebackers. It's a, it's a complex scheme. Linebacker is an important position there. And the Rams, quite frankly, don't have any quality linebackers on the roster. So they're already not going to be able to do everything they, that Staley's going to want to do in his first year here. Now, the Rams have other strengths, but what Burgess gives them is the ability to play one of their safeties at linebackers. So at least they that offsets. They have a weakness at linebacker. Okay, well, we'll just go to more safeties, put three safeties out there, which is what the Rams have done the last few years. And uh, Taylor Rapp, their pick last year, who I'm sure a lot of your listeners are familiar with, the guy from Washington, he was a phenomenal passing down linebacker late in the season for them. John Johnson, their other safety, is better down in the box. So for those guys to play there, you need a free safety, a center fielder, who you really trust. And I would imagine that's what, you know, we don't know for sure. We don't know what any of these guys will be till they get to the NFL and actually play games and get some reps. But I would imagine the Rams anticipate Burgess being their center fielder for them. And given that they don't have a lot of depth on defense, I bet Burgess is in the lineup in week one. We're joined by Andy Benoit. He covers the NFL draft for Sports Illustrated and Bet Online. Uh, Bet Online is throwing out all these over under numbers on Joe Joe Burrow. How many yards is he going to throw for? How many touchdowns is he going to throw for? It's the Bengals. Is he going to have enough around him? Are they going to be good enough? Or is this the curse of being number one? You got to go to a bad team. Well, that, that is the curse. Yes, certainly you're going to go to a team that was, was bad the year before. I think the Bengals have a chance to, to really take a huge step forward with their offense because what they didn't have last year was a healthy A.J. Green, and maybe they won't have that this year. A.J. Green's old, older, and he's been out of the lineup for three-fourths of the games the last couple of years. But let's say he's in there, or let's say T. Higgins, who they drafted to probably replace Green, he'll be in there. Either way, they have a more dimensional and a more talented receiving core than a year ago. And then their offensive line, when they put in left tackle Cordy Glenn late in the year, and Glenn had not been available for a variety of reasons, but when he got in there the last three or four games, I believe it was, that offensive line, which had absolutely killed them all season long, there was a domino effect, and there was a real stabilizing force there. Glenn's off the roster now, but Jonah Williams, their first-round pick of a year ago, he missed all of last season with an injury. He's healthy now, 100% healthy. So I bet they feel that if we have a left tackle in there and we think it's Jonah Williams will be that guy, everybody along the O-line will get better. And those guys got better over the course of last season already. So it's not a great receiving core. It's not a great offensive line yet, but they're much better units than they were last season. So Burrow is not as in a tough a predicament as Andy Dalton was a year ago with this offense. So with Tua, you talk about how today's quarterbacks get on the field early. What do you think is going to happen with Jordan Love? I think Jordan Love is going to sit for a little while. I, I, I can't. That one surprised me, if I'm being honest. And I'm sure the Packers have a plan, and it, it looks like they're taking the long view on this thing. They drafted some other guys who will probably not play a whole lot in this upcoming season. 
I, I mean, I, I didn't see it coming, so it never occurred to me that Green Bay would have a guy behind Rodgers that would even be talking about when, he, when is he going to play. I don't think it'll be a possibility at all in 2020 as long as Rodgers is healthy. I wouldn't count on it for 2021, but it'll be interesting to see. As to me, that's, that's instantly the most fascinating story now entering this upcoming season. Well, the Tom Brady-Tampa Bay story is pretty fascinating. How many games are they going to win? Are they the favorites? Are the Saints? What do you think? The Saints, I think, are the most talented team and the most complete roster top to bottom in the NFC this year. And let's remember the Falcons last year went 6-2 and two in the second half of the season, and they, they outplayed the Saints uh, for much of the time when they faced them. So, the Bucks, yeah, they're a lot better, and I'm sure they believe they're Super Bowl contenders, and then they should. Their defense is, is young but improving. Brady is still at a high level. They've added guys around them. That's a really good – that division this year has a chance to be similar probably to what the NFC West was last year. Andy Benoit covers the NFL Draft for Sports Illustrated and Bet Online. Andy, thanks for coming on this morning. We appreciate it. All right. Thanks, guys. There's Andy Benoit covering the NFL Draft for Sports Illustrated and Bet Online. When we come back, Steve Cleveland, our basketball insider, with more Michael Jordan stories and his take on BYU's new transfer, 7-3 kid out of Purdue, Matt Harms. Stay with us. Take the zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all-new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of the zone as well as podcast editions of every show. From Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo. Wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280, The Zone, and The Zone Sports Network. DJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 1280, The Zone. Time to welcome in our basketball insider, Steve Cleveland. Steve, you know, basketball insider is something we throw around on the air. It's something you're supposed to say when you're in radio. <laughs> but then you started dropping MJ and Fresno stories, and I'm like, this dude is an insider at the highest level. This is awesome. Now, Yak has told me you have more MJ stories. This is like Christmas morning. I'm loving this. Uh, you know what? I do have a few more. You know, I spent four years. He spent four years here, four summers a, for a week, and... Uh, they were all pretty amazing, and uh, I was I was talking to my sons, uh, who were like eleven and seven at the time, and uh, I just I asked them what some of their memories were, you know, and and uh, we st- we just started laughing about some of the things that happened. They they had the, the cool privilege to kind of go with him in a limo a couple of times to uh, different situations and circumstances, and. And Mike was always really kind to him, and so there, there's a pretty special place in our heart for Michael. And uh, I, I, I do remember. I'll, I'll give you one just for a starter off, and then we can talk about whatever you want to talk about. But uh, I remember that after he had uh, been here for a year, we 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 talked last time about a game where we had down at the arena downtown. But there was an experience. I think it was about '86 where. Uh, the idea was people kept coming in at night and watching the pickup games. And, and, and my two partners in this thing were two guys who had just finished out of college, had no money, and they go, hey, man, we can't be letting these people come in for free. <laughs> I said, well, what are we going to do? <laughs> and he goes, we go over there and start charging five bucks a head. 
And, and he said, get somebody at the door, you know. And I said, hey, we can't do that right now. I said, let's wait. We, maybe we'll do a game. And, and then they started thinking, yeah, that would be good. We could do a game. And, but it was really, literally at night, there'd be a two or 300 people just walking off the streets. And like I said, you got Timmy Hardaway, Mitch Richmond, Chris Mullen, Michael Jordan, Rod Higgins, you know, just playing pickup games. And so we decided, okay, let's, let's do a game. So on the, on the last day of camp on that Friday, we decided let's do a camp. And Michael said, hey, I'm, I'm cool with it, you know. And so uh, we had no idea how many people would come. One, the pre-sale deal, but it was basically like five bucks a head, you know. It's, mind you, this is back in the 80s. We weren't that serious about making money. And so uh, we ended up, uh, the thing, the place started picking up. And, and for people that don't know much about Central California in July, you know, it's 103, 104, and it stays in the high 90s and low 100s up until maybe 7, 8, 9 o'clock at night sometimes. The place ended up being packed. We, we've, in fact, we didn't have any real security, but we better, we better get some security. And we had one, a cop that we knew we came over there just to kind of make sure things were okay. But this place is packed. And we got, you know, we, were, we knew we were going to have a turnout. We didn't know it was going to be standing room only. And uh, and so we had those pros, and we had college guys, a lot of the Fresno State players who've been to the Sweet 16, guys that have left. And we start, they, the game got started, and uh, it, it was electric. I mean, it was so hot in there. We had to we brought fans in there. It didn't matter. Everybody was wringing wet. And I, my, I can still visualize Michael like, dropping dimes, just shooting the ball from all over. It's a high school course. There's no NBA 3. And, and him back, literally backpedaling and high-fiving kids and parents and then grabbing things of water. We had all sorts of water on the table, grabbing water, just throwing it in his face, getting back on defense. And I thought to myself, this is, this is the game at the purest level here. You know, here we have a guy who has already dropped 65 on the Celtics, and he, he, people know he's going to be the best player, in, you know, in the world. And he, here he is in this game, just having the time of his life, uh, teasing the kids, talking to the players, talking smack on the floor to the college kids. But that was the first time before we went to an arena where we did that. And, and I can still remember this. So it was, it was incredible. And uh, so with about a minute to go, Michael calls a timeout, which I thought was kind of surprising. And uh, he says, uh, Coach, he said, I need your keys. <laughs> I said, you need my keys? Boy, he said, I need, I need the car. I said, Timmy and I got to get out of here. We got a lot of clothes. Can we just go by your house, drop our clothes off, and then we'll come, we'll circle back, you know, we'll get something to eat and, and circle back and meet you in about an hour after the game. I said, all right. So I took keys out of my pocket, gave him my car, you know, and uh, he took off. And when the game was over, there was a lot of disappointed people because I think they thought he was just going to stand around there and do autographs for an hour. But uh, anyway... He got out of there, and uh, we ended up having an experience that I will never, ever forget. I mean, it, the back, I can just still remember, visualize the backpedaling and the high fives and throwing cups of water in his face and, and not what you think about when you think about Michael Jordan today, but it was, it was pretty special. So this actually was before the height of his popularity because he hadn't won any titles yet. Exactly. Exactly. And, and I mean, he's humble and approachable. And, uh, I mean, he had the same swagger. He had the same smack. I mean, he was talking serious trash. And, but, I mean, I, I'll, I'll be honest with you, uh, being around him in that setting, and, and uh, I mean, you knew he came from good parenting and good homes. And, I mean, he had the, the NBA side of him, 
but he, he was, uh, you know, he hadn't, he hadn't, and I don't know if he ever was. I mean, he wasn't really tainted by the world. But, I mean, when you watch that show last night, you're thinking, my goodness. But, you know, that, that just wasn't Michael. And, uh, and I, that's the thing for me is, is my memories of him was when he was a younger player and, uh, and, and still <clears throat> was everybody's favorite. He just hadn't won championships yet. And, and as it turns out, you know, in that game, in fact, before we did that game, I don't remember, I can't remember, if it, I think it was Rod Thorne who worked in the NBA office at that time. He was some commissioner over public relations. But he called and talked to Rod and Michael that day and said, whoa, 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 whoa. No, no, let us, let us send someone out. You know, and I, I, the only name I can really remember was George Griffin. But they were trying, he said, let us send somebody out for that game. We don't want Michael playing. I mean, we didn't have any insurance. Okay. First of all, we had no insurance for the people that came into the arena or into the uh, high school gym, and we certainly didn't have any uh, insurance for the players. And, and uh, it came down to Michael. I mean, he just said, nah, you know, don't worry about it. We're fine. And so you can understand why the NBA had called that time. And, uh, and, and in the end, the NBA said, hey, that's enough. And, and by the time it was the end, Michael, you know, it was even more popular and, and uh, was pretty valuable. He, he was the most valuable commodity to that league with uh, where he was, you know, he was on a meteoric rise. And uh, so they couldn't afford to have the poster boy for the NBA be out in Central California getting hurt in the summer. But, yeah, we didn't have any insurance. And uh, what can I say? It, it came off, and, and uh, I, I think he had a good time. And, and but we certainly were blessed to have him in, in our community for a few years. Steve Cleveland wrecks the NBA. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can just imagine if he broke his ankle. No. Or if no. something had happened. You know, I mean, just can you imagine? No. Oh, my uh, goodness. And, uh, and I still go back to he was having a good time, and he was, he was, you know, he and Rod were such good friends. And you can imagine just getting out of you know, obviously he could go back to North Carolina and be with his family, but, you know, he just stay in Chicago. He wanted to get away. And, and when he came out here in the Central Valley, he got away from everything. And we had news people. In fact, I thought about this. One of my kids told me the other day, they said, you need to call up a couple of sportscasters and see what kind of clips and stuff that they actually have archived. Because I'm sure uh, we had them out there. I don't know if they were out there for that game, but they used to come out to camp and do videos and stuff, and I probably need to check into that and uh, to see if, if we can find some old clips of things. I know that when we went to the arena that they had lots of video. I I just uh, I hadn't thought about maybe checking it out to see what it is, so I maybe do that. I got some time on my hands right now with things. I think I make a couple phone calls. And I remember Dan Taylor, who was the sports guy here, um, he and I went to high school together, so he might be somebody that I should call and see if he's got some clips. That'd be kind of a fun thing to watch for home movies. You surprised after all these years that Jordan still has the amount of hatred and emotion negatively for Isaiah Thomas that he has? Boy, I, you really sensed that and felt that last night. And uh, you know what? I know I watched Isaiah try to justify it and, and what happened with the Celtics and things and the rivalry they had with them, but uh, I, I, I can understand it. I mean, it's kind of like I'm, I am surprised that he's still carrying it to that degree, but it's, you know, it's pretty public and we live in a transparent world here. And uh, the idea of some of the things we saw there, 
uh, I mean, the violence in the games and the intention to hurt. I mean, we heard it. And then for them to walk off the court and not shake their hands after all of that, yeah, I can see where you still have some angst and, and some anger and, and just like, you know what, I have no respect for that. And I don't know how Michael really feels, but it seemed like last night he hadn't let it go. And uh, I, can, I can understand it. I can understand it. I, it. It was to watch that. I mean, I can imagine young, the, this generation of kids watching those games and going, oh, my goodness, you know, these are things you'd be put in jail for, you know. And uh, that, that kind of behavior, I, I forgot. I mean, we all forget, you know. We watch the league now and we love it. But uh, I think the players in the NBA today, uh, it's probably been a real eye-opener for them to watch this and see this, who, you know, were young, very young when, when this was happening and um, and probably had no real memories of it. But, uh, wow, it was, uh, it was a pretty violent sport when certain teams played each other. Uh, check out uh, their Twitter feed. Check out Donovan Mitchell on Twitter because he was not born yet when the whole Pistons-Bulls thing unfolded. And, you know, from that, uh, he had a tweet that a lot of people picked up on about uh, Dennis Rodman invented load management. So that has gone, <laughs> that's gone viral with the whole going to Vegas story. Are you surprised, and, and I guess you shouldn't be because you're, 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 you're coming out with the throwing water in his face detail. Are you surprised how vividly and how much detail the Bulls all remember these stories in because when Jordan broke out the whole Dennis is going to Vegas story and they played the clip for uh, Scotty Pippen and for Dennis Rodman and for Phil Jackson all those guys started laughing and I thought I read in all their faces like kind of breaking the code and pulling the curtain back there a little aren't you Mike they all remember that in great detail oh yeah I, I mean I don't know if you can forget that I mean that's uh, that's I was really I was really 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 surprised and and and, 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 you know, part of me is like, wow, okay, how, how does this happen? And how do we rationalize this today, you know, in terms of that's what it was. But it is what it was, and, and, uh, and Dennis was a complicated guy, and I think he still is. Um, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not judging him, but that behavior and that circumstance is something that I would never, could never have imagined. And, uh, and, and, and so public. And, and what, what can they do but laugh about it? Because at the end, the end story was that he's still alive today, and they ended up having, you know, they ended up winning that last championship, and he, he played a role in it. But um, there was kind of no moral compass there when it came to the behavior in some of those situations and circumstances. But uh, yeah, I, it, it is. I, I, I'm not surprised that they didn't forget it. I mean, you do remember things, and I mean, I'm. I'm much older now, and, and there are certain things that happened two weeks ago that I can't remember, but I can remember things that happened, you know, 35 years ago in, in, in detail. And, and so uh, it's just funny how the mind works like that. So, yeah, it doesn't surprise me that Michael could remember and have those things, and, and, and especially when they're in a setting now where they're talking about it all the time and guys are bringing things up. And it's in a circumstance where, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. I mean, just talking to my sons uh, two nights ago, it was one of those things that I thought, I hadn't even remembered that, you know, and, and just experiences that they had had. So, yeah, it, I think getting together and doing this, I, I think it's probably been a great experience for all these former players. 
One of the things that I remember very vividly is Jordan's first title and Game 5 in the form, because I remember it, I was there covering it for a suburban Los Angeles newspaper, and my job, I told you last week, was Chicago. And one of the stories that I did after that game was John Paxton and going off. And I can remember that I put in, this is just a little side note, I put in that it was some of the best shooting by a guard that we'd seen in that building since Jerry West. And the editor thought that was blasphemous, and he made me take it out. He took out. He wouldn't let me compare John Paxton's shooting to Jerry West because he was a little older than me, and Jerry West was his hero, and he wouldn't tolerate John. Well, go ahead. Yeah, he broke. He broke up, but you get you get the gist of it there. Yeah, yeah. Jerry West is sacred. Yes, he, he is sacred there. And I, I'll tell you this, though. I, I thought a fascinating, uh, as they talked about the triangle and the evolution of that with Phil and, and, and how uh, everybody kind of bought into the fact that we got to have other people contributing. And Paxson was one of those guys. And to hear his comments and thoughts. But, I, you know, it's like somebody I heard <clears throat> this morning when I was driving over. I was just listening to uh, – serious NBA radio and they said, well, when you have Michael and Scotty and you know, you have this team, does it really matter what you run? And, and I, and I, and I think you could make an argument that, you know, there's, there was so much credence given to the triangle and, and, and certainly those guys were great minds, basketball minds. But, but I think the one thing that did happen as a result of having a more of a system rather than just isolations for Michael was that guys like Paxson could really could help teams. I mean, he may not have been able to get those shots off on his own, but with that system and with superstars like they had, they had to help and put him in circumstances where they could shoot it. So that was a big part. I mean, you can say what you want about how, what you think offensively is good or not good or whatever the circumstances were, but at the end of the day, they got more guys involved, and that's, that's kind of why they won six championships. And uh, so – yeah, I, I think Paxson. It was it's just fun to watch him and that, just to see those clips again because I remember I remember that game and then my memories all of a sudden came right to me. Oh my goodness, I remember this. I remember watching this, and uh, and he was wide open and uh, he was pretty much wide open on every shot. <laughs> yeah. But uh, that that, you know, that that's an interesting story. I mean, yeah, I can't imagine. I, I have been with Jerry West a few times. Gary Colson, who was a coach here and was in New Mexico. He was at Fresno, and we became good friends when he was here. And he and Jerry West were best friends. And uh, so I had an opportunity a few times to get down to Santa Barbara, and uh, where Gary ended up living. And Jerry spent a lot of time and played golf with him. And uh, I, he, that man, uh, well, I, I was on the golf course with him, and uh, he was like kind of like playing golf with Michael, you know. It, 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 it's, it, there was so much trash talking and so much, this, and, and he had a huge ego. And, uh, you know, he was kind of, for me, it was, I guess, sir, you know, no, sir. And, and I was on my best behavior. But uh, uh, being around guys like Michael and Jerry West, I mean, they, they just have a persona and uh, that's unlike a lot of other people in sports and out of sports. You know, it's kind of, I was amazed by listening to Jerry's conversations and take on the game and 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 I, had, I was up close and personal because he and gary were good friends and so i just casually listened in but 
there's another guy that's really, really, really competitive, <laughs> just like Michael. And uh, so it was kind of fun to be around him as well. So, But Jerry West was a heck of a good shooter. I got to interview him one time on a halftime show at a UCSB radio uh, on a UCSB radio broadcast. He came up to scout Brian Shaw, and it was wow! You could just drink up the basketball knowledge. He knew so much. Like one question, and his answers were just awesome. And he was just doing it off the cuff. He was barely yeah, paying. Yeah. I felt like he was barely paying attention, engaged with me, and yet everything was awesome. So he, you're right. He definitely exudes that. Hey, I'm curious about. Uh, what you thought watching Doug Collins talk about losing his job in Chicago. So when he said he could sense it coming, it wasn't addressed directly. And Jordan, according to the bite he gave us, Jordan was notified there was a change coming. Maybe there was more than that. but Or though maybe Jerry Krause, that's just the way he ran things. Did, uh, did Doug get done dirty to get stabbed in the back by an assistant coach? Was there a palace coup there? Or that's just the way life goes and there was nothing to complain about and I'm reading too much into it? I, I think it's probably a combination of all of those things. Uh, I, I think, one number one, that they could see uh, the potential in this group and in Michael and where they were going. And but they could well you know why were they losing games and, and Michael's going for fifty but they see they're still losing and and so I, I could see the thought that hey what can we do what, what systems in place you know what, what what direction can we go so we get we can develop our players get more people involved and and I thought that uh, Coach Collins was really forthright and honest and maybe he didn't share his feelings i'm sure it was really hard at the time i mean they just gone to the eastern conference finals right mm-hmm. and i mean that was that was something that you know chicago hadn't had much success but uh i think sometimes you know in the business that when, when people you're surrounded by people that hey this is a special p this is a special guy you know, and I think eventually he probably, over the years, has come to believe you know it was probably it was the right decision. Um, but I, I know that it must have been difficult for him, and and it does seem cutthroat when you consider what they did, and it had to be hard for Michael. Uh, and I, I, you know, we, we didn't, I didn't pick up on other than what I just heard. But there's always behind the scenes feelings and hurt, and feel like you've been betrayed uh, when I. You know, and, and he and Michael had a great relationship. And the isolations, and he he did. He put Michael in a position where he uh, he, he increased the pace of Michael. You know, jettisoning up to being the best player in the league. I mean, you have to give Coach Collins credit for what, what he did with that talent and using it and putting himself in a position where he could start winning games. So he should be given a lot of credit for where he got him to. But 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 certainly, uh, um, you know, putting in the triangle and developing other players, you know, history kind of shows that that was probably the best thing they could have done, and it worked out. But I, I got to believe it had to be really hard at the time, uh, and he and, and probably Michael as well. So BYU gets a seven foot three transfer out of Purdue, a graduate transfer. What do you think Mark Pope's going to be able to do with him? You know, I've been thinking about that, and uh, – you know, you start looking at their roster, <clears throat> and, you know, they're a little thin guard-wise. I mean, you got Barcello and Harding, who I, I think Harding's going to be really special. I, I think you put him now in a situation. So, you know, you got those two guys, and you got these guys sitting out like Wyatt Lowell, who's, 
you know, 6'10". He's a kind of a three through five. You got Gavin Baxter, who's kind of a three through five. Richard Harward seems like he's a five. And now, and then you got Colby Lee, who had, who really had a really good year. And now you bring in Matt Harms, and you start thinking about here's a guy that averaged you know seven or eight points a game. He played in the Big Ten. He's a rim protector, uh, you know, and, and and pretty significant rim protector. But he's been a guy that averages about eight, you know, eight or seven, eight points a game. And I think he's going to have a real presence. But I just think, like, you can't – it's hard to play. You know, I don't know anything about Wyatt Lowell. I've never seen him play. But people say he was a 37% three-point shooter at 6'10". I mean, you you put – if you just take the two guards and put Lowell and Baxter, Harvard, and Harms, I mean, you've just got some huge size there. It'll be interesting to see how how he plays. I think defensively he's probably a guy that's going to play 20 – 24 minutes a game for him and make them better defensively for sure. Uh, and, you know, they got this year's team had a lot of guards and uh, they had depth in that position. I mean, they had three or four guards and they run a lot of ball screen action. If Wyatt Lowell truly is a three and he's going to play significant minutes at that position, and then when you have Baxter, Harvard, and Harms in there, this, this could be a really special team. I remember being at a practice. Uh, when I had gone back and, and uh, in the midseason, and I just heard, I just overheard Mark talking to one of the assistants, and he just said, I don't think people realize how good we could be. He said, I really like the guys. They were just talking about the guys that were sitting out, you know. And, and of course, they've signed uh, a, a guy out of Salt Lake. They've got this Gideon George, another defender. I mean, I think defensively, they could be really, really good with Harms in there. Um, it, but that being said, and, and just my experience in being in this business for a long time, I really like playing small. I mean, I, when you look at this year's team and you put Yoli at the five and surround him with four guards, it's hard to guard. And um, But I, I don't know enough about, you know, they say that Gavin Baxter, when he was in practice, was a really good three-point shooter. I, you know, he knocked a lot of threes. I haven't seen that yet. And until he and Lowell can do that, if they, if they start – stretching defenses, and then you have that kind of presence inside, I mean, it looks like they're going to be pretty good next year. And I don't think they're done. But certainly it's a good get. Anytime you can beat Kentucky and Texas Tech and anybody on a kid, um, I saw a little clips on him. I don't know a lot about him. Seems like a great kid. And, you know, seven foot three, uh, he's going to bring some value, certainly to this team defensively. Well, Steve, we appreciate a few minutes as always. Thanks for the MJ stories, and yeah, uh, we no will problem. talk to you again next week. All right, you guys take care. Bye-bye. Our basketball insider, Steve Cleveland, always delivers great stories. All right, when we come back, what is trending? All the headlines next.